0: There's a lot of faces out there, a lot of new faces. So I'm glad to see you all. And uh, <laughs> it's funny when, when there's someone new. I don't know about you, but I, I tend to experience the meeting or the gathering through the eyes of the new person. And so I'm thinking about what I'm going to talk about this morning. And so I apologize in advance because we're going to kind of go into the deep end of the pool a little bit here. So for first timers, kind of bear with us. For the rest of you, we've been kind of leading up to this. I've alluded, alluded to in the last few weeks that we've been going through some doctrinal and theological controversy, it seems like, with, with uh, various uh, places and people, and it comes with a territory if you're not exactly in the mainstream, which we're not, and uh, so it's interesting how these things kind of rise and fall. And as I've been dealing with these things, of course, I've been kind of talking about them over the last couple of weeks, but I guess I didn't realize how much I was dealing with them internally. Uh, until I had this crazy dream, uh, early Saturday morning. I don't normally talk about dreams, but this one is just a little bit too cool, so I, I want to I share a little bit of it with you. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I find myself looking at this scene, and I can't really tell what it is, and I'm looking at it. Have you ever noticed on a dream, you, you never, you, it always starts right in the middle of things, and you never know how you got there? That, that's, that's, that's how you know you're in a dream. If you can't remember how you got there, you're probably in a dream. Or maybe you drank too much the night before. I don't know which. But um, but anyway, so I'm kind of in the middle of things. I'm looking at this scene, and all of a sudden it starts to resolve, and I realize I'm looking at the Earth from a low orbit in space, and it's just breathtaking. You know, it's like the the, the best picture of the Earth you've ever seen. I'm looking through the clouds, and I'm seeing the oceans and a coastline and a continent, And it just takes my breath away as I'm watching this. And uh, I just seem to be hovering there. There seems to be no motion on the earth. And then all of a sudden, as I look at the details of what I'm seeing, they're slowly growing larger, and I realize that I'm falling. I'm falling into the earth. There's no sense of worry or panic. There's no air. There's no heat of reentry. I just know that I'm moving closer to to the earth and watching everything kind of grow and, and move up to meet me. And as I get closer, more and more details are are coming clear. And I realize I'm right over a coastline, and the beach has perfectly white sand, and behind that is this dark, green, rich, I don't know, it looks like a rainforest or some kind of forest. And then the ocean, as I get closer, right off the coast, right off the edge of the beach, it's that green, emerald, you know, kind of aqua color that then gradiates out into deep blue as it goes into the deep, and it's just stunningly gorgeous. And all of a sudden I find myself almost like the seam cuts. I'm on the beach and, and this white sand is so fine. It's like granulated sugar or something to the touch. It's just perfect and beautiful. And, and I'm walking along there and suddenly Marion, my wife, and our 12-year-old son, Brennan, are with me. And we're kind of walking along. And there's people all over the place and they're just walking and doing what they do. And I see a figure coming toward me And I realize that it's Emery Tang, and Emery Tang was a Franciscan priest who was one of my main and primary mentors 30 years ago to about 25 years ago when I was trying to live up at Sarah Retreat and connecting with him at the real difficult time in my life when I needed him and he was there. And I see him coming, and he's wearing his brown Franciscan robe with the white rope, and he's actually got his hood on, and it's down over his forehead, But I could see his eyes and I know that it's him. And I'm so glad to see him because I feel like I never got a chance to thank him for everything that he did for me. And he never got a chance to see how much good he did for me. How that crazy person that he was talking to back then settled down somewhat. And I never got a chance to have that connection. And so I run up to him and I'm thanking him and I'm trying to tell him how much everything means. And and he just says, you know, You were just trying to find your way back home. That's all he said to me. And then suddenly the scene cut again, and I found myself alone on the beach. And all of a sudden it clicked, and I realized that Emery is dead. He died ten years ago. And this kind of rush came up through me as I realized that uh, I had seen his spirit somehow and I didn't know how that worked and and so then I had to run and find Marion to find out if I wasn't crazy or not. (laughs) Did you see what I saw? Did you see it? And then I woke up and and the dream was over. All right what the heck do you do with something like that? You know where do dreams come from? What do they do for us? Do they do anything for us? Are they just random? These are questions that so many people ask and so many people ask me. I don't know if dreams give us information that we don't already have. I don't know if they predict anything. I I don't know that for sure. I've never experienced that myself. What I have experienced is that dreams very much do pull up all that subconscious material into a symbolic and figurative framework and present to us what we're really dealing with at our core level that we may not be aware of on a day-to-day basis, And I started to think about each image and what was going on and and what it meant. And I realized that the day before, on Friday, Hector and I had driven down to the border and we were just jabbering all the way down and all the way back up. And one of the things that we talked about, I can't even remember how we got on the subject, was technology and where technology is going. And I remember back in 1968 when 2001, A Space Odyssey came out. I was 12 years old. I got so addicted to that movie. I saw it six times. This is when you had to go to the movies, to see it six times. And when you're 12, that means you're dragging your parents to it six times to see a movie, you know? I was just crazy. I read the book three times, whatever. But the thing that that was so exciting to me is that, and I calculated how old I was going to be in 2001. I was going to be 45 years old, and there was going to be a permanent space station in orbit, and there was going to be a colony on the moon, and I was going to get to go. I just wanted to go so bad. So the biggest disappointment is when two thousand and one came by and two thousand seventeen came by and we're now closer than we were in nineteen sixty eight to any of that stuff. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's not gonna happen now, I'm never gonna get out of orbit. And here I was in orbit in this dream, and it was so real. You know, you ever had those dreams that are so real you wake up and you have to think a while where you are? It's just amazing. There was a sense of freedom. And then I was falling into this scene. And for the last two Wednesdays at our book study, we've been using skydiving as an extended metaphor for the choice that we ultimately have to make to just engage in life and throw ourselves in. And that the fear is there for as long as we think the choice is there, but once the choice is made, you can just enjoy the ride. And that's what I was doing all the way down, was enjoying this ride as I went down. And then the white sand and the white shores. As I was thinking about it yesterday morning, I remembered the scene from Lord of the Rings where Gandalf and Pippin are facing this big battle and they're about realizing the chances of death are pretty great. And Pippin is pretty sad about that. And he just says, I didn't think it was going to end this way. And Gandalf says, End. Death is not the ending. Death is just another path that we all must take. He said, the gray rain veil of the world pulls away and then all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. And Pippin says, what? He says, white shores and a far green country under a swift sunrise. And Pippin says, well, that's not so bad. He says, no, it isn't. (laughs) But it was that sense of hopefulness, that sense of there is no end. And then to see Emery again you know, alive again, with that sense of that connection of all things. And then Emery being there and what he told me. you are just looking for a way back home. Reminding me of the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of what we're doing here. We make it so complicated. We make it so stressful, so full of duty and obedience and all these things when we miss the fact that we're just trying to get back home. It's so simple. And not only that, but Emery Kang was the first one who finally showed me that what we think with our minds, the theologies that we collect, concoct, I was going to say, not a good word probably, but the theologies that we hold mentally, the doctrine that we believe, the dogma, the ritual practices, the religion, is not what's at issue. When I came to him after a session where he said something that I really violently disagreed with theologically and came to him with my Bible to debate him, and he just put his hand in my face and he said, look, all I can tell you is what I'm convinced of. You go become convinced of what you're convinced of. And what he was telling me then, even though I thought it was a cop-out and he was dodging my question, was that these things cannot be Spoken, they can't be categorized they can't be put under glass we can't create a theological expression for something that's inexpressible and so go become of what you're convinced of go find your way back home do that because all I can tell you is what I'm convinced of even if I can't prove it to you in any way that you would accept and so what I realized that this dream was full of everything that I needed after having gone through the last month, month and a half, whatever it's been. It was full of hope. It was full of that exhilaration, you know, flying dreams, the feeling of liberation, the feeling of freedom, the feeling of falling and enjoying the ride. Reminds me of that Toy Story line, you know? I don't really fly. This is falling with style. was falling with style. And then to meet Emory again and to have that connection... It was a gift, and I'll take it from wherever it comes from. But I believe that these, if we're paying attention, dreams, connections, what we call coincidences, people coming in and out, just things that we see can all be teachers and can reaffirm and can put wind back under our wings again and lift us up when we're really starting to feel that we're losing it. Now, in these Wednesday night book studies, we've gotten a little bit controversial. We're actually going through my second book, which is dealing with Jesus from an Eastern Aramaic point of view, but how that impacts various issues that we deal with every day. And so it's gotten lively, and it's been great. It's been wonderful, but sometimes it's a little contentious. And my friend Vaughn, who's sitting right out there, who was sitting just inside the door last Wednesday night, managed to call me a functional heretic. And I just love that. A functional... You know, I don't even really know exactly what you meant by functional heritage. (laughs) But I know what I mean by it. I think it means that I am pushing the envelope just this side of too far. I'm pushing the envelope. I'm trying to move to the next level. Trying to find what it is that Jesus is telling us. Trying to take his notion of this radical love that is so hard almost impossible for us to get our arms around to its radical conclusion to see how deep the the rabbit hole really goes but still remain within Christendom to remain to remain recognizably obviously a follower of Jesus an avid follower of Jesus so I'm still functional still functioning even though many people disagree and sometimes violently disagree But with that definition, shouldn't we all be functional heretics? Shouldn't we all be trying to push the envelope, trying to push our faith? If you think faith is not having any doubt, then you've never taken your faith seriously enough. Faith is about pushing out, moving out beyond the evidence, beyond what you think you know, beyond the pale, the safe zone, and seeing what God has out there, beyond anything you think you know. That's where the growth happens. That's where all of the spiritual connection that Jesus is talking about that takes us into true freedom is where that happens. And so we all should be willing to break up the established systems in our lives, in the groups around us, if they seem to be no longer reflecting Jesus and who Jesus is and how he lived and the choices he made. We don't do this for nothing, but where we see disconnection, dysfunction, that's where we have to start asking these questions. What is required of me personally so that I can be consistent again? I can live with integrity again. And so this morning and kind of in general, I have a saying that I like to bring up every now and again. If it's breakable, let's break it now. Why are we trying to try to hold something together, tiptoe on eggshells and and hold things together with duct tape and chewing gum? If it's breakable, break it now. Let's wade fearlessly into this thing that we call faith. Wade fearlessly into the relationships that we have and see what can handle the stress and what can't and what can be mended and what can't. We need to know these things and we don't want to have to hold this together for five more years and have it break then. We're just five years older. Let's do it now. Let's move in. Let's see how deep the rabbit hole really goes. I put a little uh, graphic into your inserts and now would be a good time to take a look at it and let's see how you feel about that. This is a church, Rose City Park, United Methodist Church up in Portland, Oregon. And they put this sign out in front of their church. (laughs) Frank's already laughing. God prefers kind atheists over hateful Christians. Now this thing went viral all over the world um, through the internet. God prefers kind atheists over hateful Christians. And I don't know how that's striking you right now. It could be really boiling your blood. It could sound absolutely blasphemous or heretical. I don't know. But let me read you what they wrote about it. Because it's worth talking about. They wrote, It all began with this sign. Little did we know what a response we would get. On our signboard in the front of our church, we put up a sign that said God prefers kind atheists over hateful Christians, and the rest, as they say, is history. Our little sign has gone viral three times since it was first put up in April of 2012. The response has been overwhelmingly positive, although there were those that were sure we had lost our minds or our souls. Never meant to be taken literally, the sign was originally put up to try to promote thoughtful conversation about how we as Christians treat those that we consider different. We received countless emails from all over the country from gays and lesbians who had been ostracized from their church homes because of their sexual preference. Many had lost faith in the church, and some went so far as to say they had lost faith in humanity." We hope that in a small way, we were able to encourage them in their quest to find a church in their area that would be accepting and loving. We believe that God's love is for everyone, regardless of race, ethnic identity, gender, sexual orientation, age, ability, economic status, or life situation. Okay, so it's a bit of a straw man to set this up, you know, uh, logically. And it's always difficult when you compare the best of one thing to the worst of another. You know, that's never a fair comparison, and so I get all that. But remember, this wasn't meant to be taken literally, you know. And truthfully, God doesn't prefer anyone over anyone else. If God's love really is what Jesus said it was, then God loves everyone absolutely equally, absolutely the same. There is never any differentiation in God's love. He hates, he hates, he loves the hateful as much as he loves anyone else. He doesn't hate at all. He is love. He doesn't do or do not love. He is love. It's a completely different thing. But having said that, this sign really is making a valid point. There's a tragedy here that's been happening, but it happens throughout humanity. It's not unique to Christianity. And the tragedy is that we're excluding, we're condemning, we're excommunicating, we're ostracizing, and we're hurting people in the name of the inclusive one. In the name of Jesus, we're doing these things. In the name of what we believe Jesus' gospel was about, we're doing these things. We're hurting people. How does this happen? It happens when we start to place emphasis on artificial and arbitrary lines and distinctions and categories that we make. Whether it's politically, whether it's racially, whether it's theologically, religiously, we create these boxes and then we place all the emphasis on the boxes. Who's in, who's out? And we make judgments based on those and then those become more important than the people themselves. And everything starts to go back to front. Y'all know who Viktor Frankl is. Viktor Frankl is one of the fathers of modern psychology. Uh, Came up in the first part of the last century. He was a Jew, an Austrian, and he was caught up in in, uh, the Nazi sweep and ended up at Auschwitz with his entire family. And his entire family was killed. He was the only one who survived the concentration camps and the war. Coming out of that, he wrote a book in nine days. I can't believe he did this. In nine consecutive days, he wrote Man's Search for Meaning, which has become a classic, an existential classic, not only just in psychology, but but just in philosophy. And in there, he writes, the first half is about his experience at Auschwitz, and the second half is about his psychological theory called logotherapy. He realizes that the main purpose, man's will, is to meaning as opposed to Adler, who said it was power, and Freud, who said it was pleasure. With Frankel, it was meaning that was driving people. But listen what he says from this book on this topic. He says, It must be stated that even among the guards, these are the guards at Auschwitz, the prison guards, there were some who took pity on us. I remember one day a guard secretly gave me a piece of bread, which I knew he must have saved from his breakfast ration. It was far more than the small piece of bread which moved me to tears at that time. It was the human something which this man also gave to me, the word and look which accompanied the gift. But the senior camp warden, a prisoner himself, was harder than any of the SS guards. He beat the other prisoners at every slightest opportunity, while the camp commander, to my knowledge, never once lifted his hand against any of us. It is apparent that the mere knowledge that a man was either a camp guard or a prisoner tells us almost nothing. Human kindness can be found in all groups, even those which, as a whole, it would be easy to condemn. The boundaries between groups overlapped, and we must not try to simplify matters by saying that these men were angels and those were devils. Certainly, it was a considerable achievement for a guard or a foreman to be kind to the prisoners in spite of all the camp's influences. And on the other hand, the baseness of a prisoner who treated treated his own companions badly was exceptionally contemptible. But from all this, we may learn that there are two races of men in this world, but only these two, the race of the decent men and the race of the indecent men. Both are found everywhere. They penetrate into all groups of society. No group consists entirely of decent or indecent people. And in this sense, no group is of pure race. The decent or the indecent. Those who treat people with civility and courteousness and, and life affirmation. In other words, like Jesus did. And those who don't. That's a line that has meaning, has teeth and traction. All these other lines that we create do not. Tell me you're a Christian. I don't care. In fact, if you lead with you're a Christian, then I'm going to start checking my wallet because you are probably selling something. Are you a decent Christian? Are you a Christian, Christian who reflects Jesus? That's what I want to know. And that's what I think we all should want to know about ourselves and about everyone else as we try to go through this faith walk. The reason that Hector and I were driving down to the border on Friday was to have a meeting with a group of the women who, for 25 years or so almost, have been managing Five dining rooms that we as Children of the Americas, which is an organization that I've been with since 1980, I think, some 36 years and heading it up since the year 2000, which worked primarily for children in Mexico for the purposes of education and, and nutrition. And so we had dining rooms that fed over 500 children a day breakfast so that they could concentrate on their studies. We gave them backpacks in the fall full of school supplies, and we just tried to fill whatever needs that we could. Three years ago, we started uh, breaking ground on land that was donated to us, and a year and a half ago or so, we completed uh, a brand new, very large building that was functioning as both a community center, a dining room, and eventually it was going to be a daycare center for, for children. Now, I was heading it up since uh, the organization since 2000, but uh, 10 years ago when we started The Effect, my time really started to get impacted. And five years ago when we started the treatment center, it went to a trickle. And so I realized that I was no longer really leading the organization. It was just kind of running forward on its own steam. And I started looking for people who could take over leadership. And I went through a whole succession of them over a five-year period. And then finally last year, found found a, uh, a pastor who came highly recommended to me and I knew that he wanted to take the organization in a more religious direction because we were humanitarian um, but th- that was fine that, that was as long as he and he promised that they were going to keep the programs going and keep doing the, the thing that they were, we were doing with the children so after six months I, I called down to find out the uh, Olivia is her name she was our coordinator to find out how she was doing and how things were going in the transition and found out that things were not going well at all and so we needed to have a meeting and I brought Hector down as my translator because I am not fluent in Spanish and uh, Hector saved me. And it was Olivia and her daughter, Carla, and the woman who uh, of the, who is the daughter of the person who gave us the land and so on and so forth. And we're all talking there and I'm hearing their story and they're saying that, now, what the organization is doing is making religious prerequisites for the services and, and the the aid that we give to the children. So in order for them to, to get their backpacks, they have to go to Bible studies. They had a movie night, and in order to go to movies, you had to go to the Bible studies. And everyone is really up in arms about this. You have to think, you know, down there, everybody's about 90% Christian anyway, kind of divided between Catholics and Protestants, but they're all Christian. And so these prerequisites were being put on. The ladies told me that now when the kids see the the pastor coming, they run, they scatter, because they don't want to deal with what he wants to deal with. They took, uh, we were paying um, our managers a certain amount, stipends during the month, and we were paying scholarships to children, and they just announced they are going to cut those off. Our coordinator had set up a... um, her own nonprofit down in Mexico by the same name as the United States nonprofit so that she could work with the border crossing and with their social services and various other agencies. And they drew up some paperwork and and had her sign that away so that it's now under control of the United States Corporation. And then the last cut that was coming was that the land that I thought was donated to us, actually in Mexico, it's just a hundred year designation is what they do. And so you can use it for the purpose that was stated for up to a hundred years, but you don't actually own the land. And they were trying to get the family to sign the land over so that they actually own the land as well. And this is where they were really starting to push back. But as I'm listening to them talk, even in Spanish where I wasn't hearing everything, I was just watching their eyes, and their eyes were so angry and hurt. And I apologized for making this transition on them, Uh, and they understood. But at one point, um, Carla, Olivia's daughter, when she was talking about her mom getting rashes on her arms from the stress that she was going through, burst into tears, and Martina burst into tears, and just look at the hurt. You know there's nothing wrong with evangelical programs. there's nothing wrong with Bible studies. There's nothing wrong with starting a church on Sunday mornings like he wanted to do. That would all have been great. But in the name of that, to see that they were I, sup- I guess they were horrified that we weren't doing evangelical work, but we were a humanitarian organization. We were interfaith, and so we were working for the kids. but of course, we were m- almost all Christians if they had come into the neighborhood and just made relationships and just spent time helping the women do the things that they were already doing, connecting with them, and then introducing their programs, people would have come. They would have come because it would have been fun and because they knew everybody and they, and they appreciated the connection of the people that were helping them. But by emphasizing so much on what mentally they knew that they needed to do, It completely alienated everyone. And they didn't even realize they were doing it. I know these people well enough to know that they're sincere. They think they're helping. They want to help. But the upshot of all this is going to be that these women are in full mutiny now, full revolt. And they're probably going to lose the connection with the community completely, with all of the programs, and with the land and with the building because they want to take it back and they want to do it themselves. <sighs> what a disaster. What a mess. Why does this stuff happen? Why do we go in with that such an imperialistic attitude? Now, I know I'm only hearing one side of the story, and eventually I will talk to them, and I'll find out the other side of the story and, and get more balance, you know. But I still know that the hurt is there. The alienation is there. The damage is done. And there's not going to be any way of fixing it. It doesn't look like right now. We'll see how it goes. I'll do the best I can. But I've been thinking about this for the last few days. And it just keeps going round and round in my mind. What went wrong here? How could we have avoided this? And what went wrong is what always goes wrong when you think about it. It's when religion and doctrine and practice become more important than people. We don't see the people anymore. We see the project. We see the agenda. We see the outcome where we need to get. And then we start hurting people in the name of Jesus, in the name of the very one that we're trying to save. We hurt people in the name of our faith. When I was in... uh, grad school, working on a Masters in Divinity, I remember my first day in hermeneutics class, which is biblical interpretation, and the, the teacher, one of the first things he says as he's giving us his introduction is he says, you know, it's really important for all of us to interpret scripture rightly so that we can establish doctrinal unity. In fact, I think he said so we can force doctrinal unity. I think that was the word he actually used, but... He wanted us to interpret Scripture rightly so we could establish doctrinal unity. When is that ever going to happen? It hasn't happened in 2,000 years in Christianity. It hasn't happened in any other world tradition ever. How do we get to the point where we can force doctrinal unity? In other words, to get everyone thinking as one. It never was. I don't think it's ever going to be. But... Functional unity is something different. Living and acting as one is something that we can do. I've been working in, in Chile Americas um, with, a, with a man who, who wanted to join our organization. And I realized early on two things. First of all, this man was so far to the right of me, <laughs> theologically and doctrinally, as to be on a different planet. And secondly, you couldn't manage him at all. Either he was going in your direction or he wasn't, so we could just parallel. And yet for 15 years, we worked side by side because he was all for those kids. He loved those children, and he would do anything for those children. So it didn't matter if we were seeing eye to eye. It only mattered that we could stand shoulder to shoulder. It didn't matter if we were thinking as one. Doctrinal unity didn't matter in the face of what we could do in the field for those children. We just needed functional unity. And for 500 years now, especially in the West, since the Protestant Reformation, the focus of our church has been leading with the mind, with the intellect, with the intellectual understanding of the gospel. But what happens when you do that? Think about that. When we use our minds, right, what does the mind want to do? The mind wants to understand right? It wants to eliminate any unknowns and it wants to make things certain. It's focused externally on contrast. That's how the mind does its work. How do we make things known? We find the contrast. We create the distinctions. We find the edges, the categories, the labels, the polarities, light versus dark and good versus evil and positive and negative and right and wrong we create and find these edges so that we can make these distinctions. We have to separate and distinguish things in order to understand them so that we can control them so that we can survive. That's what the mind does. Necessarily so. That's what the mind is supposed to do. It assumes that there is a basic lack or a need at the core of life. And so we need to control all these things so we can acquire what we need to continue on. But there's another way to approach life, and that's with the heart. What does the heart want to do? The heart wants to belong, to be a part of, to connect. The heart is focused internally on unity, on blurring the edges between people and things, on acceptance, on inclusion, on forgiveness, on commonality. Emphasizing commonality instead of contrast. Using intuition to find meaning. Not understanding, but meaning, which is a different thing. And not just to survive, but to actually thrive. To have the abundant life that Jesus was talking about. And instead of assuming a lack or an emptiness at the core, the heart assumes abundance. It assumes fullness. It assumes that at the core of life is everything that we need if we just connect with it. And so what we're really looking for here, of course, is balance. Trying to get a balance between heart and mind, between these two ways of looking at life. Take a look at what Jesus says at Matthew 10. He says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but this is Jesus' imagery. This is how Jesus says the same thing. The balance of a snake and the dove, of the mind and the heart, of understanding and belonging. He's telling us that there needs to be a balance there. And each one of us, starting as children, we start out all heart, don't we? All intuition, all connection. And then we get hurt. Someone betrays us for the first time. We realize people aren't always going to be there for us. And then the mind comes in and overrides the heart. Won't let the heart come out and play anymore. Because the mind is trying to protect. The mind is trying to survive. The egoic mind creates all the edges and distinctions to try to control things. Now all of us let our minds and our ego and our fear take over as we come out of childhood. And then a lot of our institutions and systems and churches are reinforcing that to the extent that we end up all the way jammed over to the other side. We're operating wholly out of mind. And what Jesus is trying to do is pull the pendulum back. Pull it back. Look at Matthew 11, verse 16. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Not entering in anymore. Not become, becoming open and transparent. Allowing ourselves to feel the things that each moment, each situation and circumstance and relationship brings to us. Not entering in. At Matthew 7, verse 1, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Jesus is talking about this mind. All it does is measure. All it does is find edges and distinctions. All it does is compare one thing to another. And so that every moment is never good enough because there's some other moment that, to which it's being compared, something else that it's being measured with. And so we can never be fully present if we're always in that mode of judging. At Matthew 15, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. A man is not defiled by what enters his mouth, but by what comes out of it. I love this part. And then the disciples came to him and said, Are you aware that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Yeah, think? The Pharisees were all about the law. They were all about... The reason Jesus even said this is because the Pharisees were coming down on him because his disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. The purity codes, everything that was supposed to happen in terms of their their dietary restrictions and the purity codes and, and all of the temple practices... They had made a fine art out of this. And Jesus is telling them, that has nothing to do with anything. It's not what comes in that defiles. It's what comes out. It's what is inside. He's trying to get them to understand this. He's really echoing what Micah says at Micah 6, 6-8, to 8, back in the Old Testament. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It's what comes out. Not what goes in. It's not external thoughts, creeds, practices, rituals, doctrines that sanctify us. It goes in the other direction. And then finally at Matthew 19, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. Don't forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. These children, living as they live, are kingdom. We need to pull the pendulum back for where it's gone so far over to the mind. And where we want to end up is right in the middle. Right in the middle. Because if the mind overrides, then we get into intolerance and exclusion and alienation. And if the heart overrides, it goes into codependence and indulgence and enabling. And either pull creates an indecent, quote-unquote, harm to others. Not intentional. Jesus said from the cross, forgive them, they don't even know what they're doing. We don't know what we're doing. We think we're doing the right thing. We can't see it because we're so far over to that side. Jesus is teaching balance, but he's also showing us that we lead with the heart and only use the mind where necessary. Kind of echoing Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel continuously, use words where necessary. I want to end with a little bit more of Viktor Frankl. He writes, In the camps, in the concentration camps, Woe to him who saw no more sense in his life, no aim, no purpose, and therefore no point in carrying on. He was soon lost. The typical reply with which such a man rejected all encouraging arguments was, I have nothing to expect from life anymore. What sort of answer can one give to that? What was really needed was a fundamental change in our attitude toward life. We had to learn ourselves, and furthermore, we had to teach the despairing men that it did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We needed to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead to think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life daily and hourly. Our answer must consist not in talk and meditation. And to that I would add, not in doctrine or theology or ritual, but in right action and in right conduct. Right because it reflects Jesus. Life ultimately means taking the responsibility to find the right answer to its problems and to fulfill the tasks which it constantly sets for each individual. These tasks, and therefore the meaning of life, differ from man to man and from moment to moment. Thus, it's impossible to define the meaning of life in a general way. Questions about the meaning of life can never be answered by sweeping statements, by theology, by doctrine. Life does not mean something vague, but something very real and very concrete, just as life's tasks are also very real and very concrete. Love is the only way to grasp another human being in the innermost core of his personality. No one can ever become fully aware of the very essence of another human being unless he loves him. By his love, he is enabled to see the essential traits and features in the beloved person. And even more, he sees that which is potential in him or her, which is not yet actualized, but yet ought to be actualized. Furthermore, by his love, the loving person enables the beloved person to actualize these potentialities. By making him aware of what he can be and of what he should become, he makes these potentialities come true. Meaning and purpose can't be realized through the mind. The mind only creates the division, the separation, by definition of the way it works. But decent action... Life-affirming action, action that reflects Jesus' action we call that love is the only way home. Our whole spiritual journey is a journey home. We came from love, and the only action only the action of love will bring us back home, to love, to Father. action that erases the edges and makes us all one, right here, right now. I think that's the definition of a functional heretic. Someone who is not afraid to disregard accepted doctrine if, in practice, that doctrine no longer functions like love, no longer functions like Jesus. And by this definition, Jesus was a functional heretic, too. That puts us in really good company, don't you think? Let's pray. Father, some of these things are difficult for us. Pushing the envelope takes us into disorientation. And if we disagree mentally, if we disagree cognitively, help us to continue to talk to each other, to find the common ground, to warm our relationships, and to continue living for you. Help us to see that it's in relationship, it's in connection, that everything that you're about and everything that we're about is realized. Help us to go there first. Help us to build good relationship first. Father, your love is something that is so difficult for us to apprehend. Help us to keep moving toward it day by day, choice by choice, moment by moment. Thank you for giving us everything that we need to do this. Thank you for your love and thank you for not letting us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.